reading Romans on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning without a Bible, uh, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible, to know the Bible, to read the Bible, to study the Bible. Make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you uh, today. A single verse this morning, Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and as we live in this world that is uh, shaking and is uh, shifting and moving so rapidly and is so powerful in its ability to conform our doing and our thinking and even our believing, we're glad to come back week by week and day by day to Your Word that is the plumb line. It is the truth. It is powerful in a way that nothing else in the world is. It washes us. It sanctifies us. It equips us. It feeds us, Lord. And, and it brings us and keeps us right in line with Your truth and how life is intended to be lived. And we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word here this morning. We also thank You for how detail-oriented You are in conforming us into the image of Christ, how committed You are that every portion of our lives would be like Him. And we pray, Lord, that You would use this time in this verse to accomplish that in each of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul lays out this tremendous treatise on uh, the gospel, uh, how it is that God has chosen to save us and to save us not only out of uh, the consequences of the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin as we will enter into the glory of heaven. A glory and the reality of that, the surety of that is as great as you and I sitting in this room this morning. And as Paul finishes those first 11 chapters, he then begins in chapter 12 to lay out what is the, uh, the response that is reasonable to all that God has done for us. And he begins with calling upon us to present our lives as a living sacrifice unto God. Uh, which is our reasonable service, he says. And then the remainder of the book of Romans is a description of what a living sacrifice looks like. It's an easy thing to say, an easy phrase to speak, but what does it look like? And he describes what a living sacrifice looks like through the remainder of the book. And we remember very specifically in these verses 9 through 16 of, of chapter 12 that, the Paul, that Paul continues his description of what it means to have our lives presented to God as a living sacrifice with a specific focus on what it's to look like in our relationship with one another as Christians. And so we look at this, continue on that theme here in verse uh, 15. Paul declares that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. In other words, Paul calls upon each of us as Christians, not some select few, but it's to every Christian that we are to be empathetic toward one another. And the word empathy comes from a German word meaning feeling into. 
and it speaks of someone uh, uh, of uh, seeing someone else's situation and to be able to do so from his perspective and then to share in the emotions the situation is producing in them. Empathy is deeper than sympathy. Uh, sympathy speaks of, uh, says, I care about your suffering. Uh, empathy says, I feel your suffering. And I don't want to get into some big technical, you know, uh, uh, dividing between empathy and, and sympathy here and all the nuances of it. I just mentioned it merely to say that in this admonition of Paul here, that he's calling upon us at the very least as Christians to engage uh, one another and one another's lives with a very, very deep, heartfelt concern for one another, that we are to genuinely uh, care uh, for one another. And especially, but not limited to, uh, the highs and the lows uh, of life. So we ask ourselves, why in the world is an admonition like this even uh, necessary? Why is it important? Well, because without it, we would be prone uh, to become like a very large section of uh, people in the world around us, and that is that uh, those who rejoice only over their own happiness, and they uh, weep only over their own sorrows. They have uh, no capacity for doing so at either extreme with any other human being. They keep those emotions solely uh, to themselves. And I think it's good to examine our own hearts here, even this morning as Christians, not in a condemning way, but as a preparation for receiving what Paul says here, to ask myself if that's uh, my case, that if I were to look at my life honestly and to say, you know, I never weep for anyone else. Uh, when I weep, it is solely for my own misfortune and my own difficulties and circumstances in life. And when I rejoice, I never rejoice for another person, not in any meaningful way. All my rejoicing is completely reserved uh, for myself. And the problem with living that kind of a life, period, but try, living that kind of a life as a Christian is it is to live so far, far, far below the life that the Holy Spirit wants to lead us into and very, very far below the, the very life that Jesus lived. Of course, the Gospels are filled with examples of Jesus engaging with people in the very way that Paul calls on us to do uh, here, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those uh, who weep. And as you know, we could spend the entire morning uh, to, uh, examining this emotional side uh, of Jesus through the various events in his life and how often the Bibles talk about how he was moved with compassion, whether for a crowd or whether for an individual, a, a compassion, having a communion with the passion of where people were exactly in that moment and that compassion driving what it was that he then uh, did in response to uh, the needs and even the joys that were in their life and uh, how often he was moved in these situations, not merely by his intellect, not merely by his insight, but by his emotion, by his compassion as well. And I'll just leave all of that with just the simple observation that in the Gospel of John, 
uh, that great gospel that brings out uh, the deity of Christ. There are seven great, uh, eight great mir- seven great miracles that are recorded there in that, that gospel. And the first has him turning uh, water into wine, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And the final miracle has him raising Lazarus from the dead. And, uh, but not before weeping himself and weeping with those who weep. I want to flip the order of how we look at this this morning and begin with uh, the admonition to weep with those who weep. And the Greek word for weep here, and uh, it, it literally means to weep, it means to wail, it means to lament. So it includes not merely the shedding of tears. The word is very, very broad, intentionally so. And, and it includes every single uh, expression uh, of, of grief. And why is this important to notice? And, and I think it's important to notice because it tells us two important things. First of all, that being a Christian doesn't exempt us from experiencing very, very deep sorrow uh, in our lives. And that's something that we can't be reminded of enough. And second, it, it tells us and reminds us that weeping and sorrowing and lamenting uh, in this way as a Christian, when we find ourselves in, in the middle of some immense loss or some uh, crushing, heartbreaking circumstance, that when we feel this emotion and when we feel the depth of that emotion and, 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 it, and it takes us into the place of the deepest weeping within our lives, that to do so is not unspiritual at all. It, it, it is not the lack of faith in a person who weeps in this way or, or a lack of spiritual perspective uh, in their lives. And it's important to notice that Paul does not condemn weeping in a Christian at all. There's no condemnation of it at all. Not in the person who's weeping. In fact, he calls on others to join them in their weeping. There's no lack of spirituality in weeping as a Christian. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, rebuke those who weep. He doesn't say, exhort those who weep, or lecture those who weep, or even speak to those who weep. He certainly doesn't say, fix those who weep. He doesn't say, rescue those who weep. And I think that it is helpful to realize that tears are their own language. They are a communication if we're sensitive enough to to recognize that. They are a communication, communicating something from the heart of the person that is weeping that cannot at that moment in time quite be put into words. David knew all about it in his life and in the writing of the Psalms. I'll give you one example of it. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David wrote and he said to God, You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not written? uh, Are they not in your book? In other words, David is saying there that our tears of sorrow are so precious to God that he keeps them in a bottle. But he doesn't stop there. It isn't just that. But then God then writes them in his book. That is, He puts into words the prayer 
that he knows the tears are communicating to him, and he vows never to forget them. He vows never uh, to lose them. And I think it's good to know that when a Christian is weeping with God, uh, they're not merely weeping, but their weeping is a prayer to God. When we enter into a situation and someone is weeping before God and to God, something sacred is happening at that moment. A communication is happening of the heart to God. A prayer is being lifted up to God uh, in that prayer, and a prayer that he fully understands. There's an old saying uh, that goes like this. If you cannot improve upon silence, uh, don't speak. Uh, it, it's good. I've, uh, another one I like is, I've rarely, uh, I've rarely regretted something I didn't say. I have occasionally, but not very often. Almost all of my regret is associated with something I've said uh, or, or said the right thing in the wrong place or at the wrong time. And, and I think that for our purposes this morning, maybe we could kind of adapt the adage as, as follows for when we find ourselves present with someone who's weeping, as Paul describes uh, here. If you cannot improve upon tears, uh, don't speak. Uh, sometimes uh, tear, uh, words are necessary in a situation like that, but I don't think they uh, are, should be spoken uh, until... Uh, someone has wept, if not outwardly, at least inwardly, and, uh, and, and unless the words come from a broken heart. In this regard, I really like the testimony of a man uh, by the name of Joseph Bailey. Uh, he and his wife, they lost three of their seven children uh, in death. And he was so impacted by it, of course, and by the experience of it, that he wrote a book about it. And the book is entitled, The Last Thing We Talk About. It's out of print now. And uh, in that book, uh, he wrote this. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave, he talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish that he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. And that's very, very powerful and very, very well put, I think. I think that very often as Christians, we are worse than non-Christians in this regard of trying to lecture people who weep or trying to fix people uh, who weep. Because atheists and agnostics have really nothing of hope to speak into those kind of circumstances in life. And so by and large, they don't try to. They just hug a person, they express their sorrow, 
and they just are kind of there for them. And most often because they know they have no rhyme or reason to life and to what is it, the losses in life. They don't, it doesn't even enter into their minds to try and fix a broken heart or to try and give uh, tragedy uh, 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 or the cause of the sorrow uh, any kind of meaning uh, to it. But I found that very often we as Christians, we feel somehow compelled to try and jar people quickly out of this kind of sorrow and weeping. And I think that some Christians are very, very uncomfortable with seeing another person, uh, another Christian cry, and to certainly see them cry with the strength uh, of the word that Paul uses here in this passage to describe uh, the weeping that can involve even a Christian's uh, life. And I don't know if somehow we think that weeping is unspiritual. Uh, in other words, if we just had enough faith or we claim the right promises from God's Word uh, that weeping uh, should be unnecessary. Uh, but clearly that isn't so. Because again, Paul doesn't condemn uh, weeping at all here by a Christian. And I think that very often when Christians witness uh, weeping by another Christian, that we can be concerned that somehow that person's faith is failing, or somehow that when a Christian weeps, it reflects badly upon God and badly upon his reputation. And so we feel as if we've got to say something to make the person snap out of it. And, and uh, maybe with a Bible verse or some kind of uh, superficial, uh, insensitive remark like, come on, cheer up, or come on, it's not so bad, or you'll get over it, uh, or worse, and, and uh, certainly one of the worst things that anyone can do, and yet we're so prone to it. And I've seen it over and over and over again where we come to someone who is weeping, and rather than weeping with them, we turn the focus on ourselves and we begin to tell them about some difficult trial that we were in and how we handled it, and yes, uh, intimating that we handled it far better than they are. Uh, and, uh, or we'll say the absolute worst thing that any human being can say to anyone in that kind of a situation, and that is, I know exactly how you feel. When we do not, even if we are going through the exact same loss uh, in the, at the exact same season in life, no two people are exactly alike. No people have the same emotional makeup. No two people have the same history in life, the same formative events. Nobody knows exactly what anyone else is feeling in any situation in life, let alone a time of of uh, uh, astonishing and numbing kind of, of loss. We can't. And even, as I say, if it's the same sorrowful uh, circumstances. And we can just be so prone to say uh, the dumbest, most hurtful things at a time like this when we're trying to get people to kind of stuff their sorrow uh, not because they're uncomfortable with their tears, because, but because we're uncomfortable with their tears. 
I also think that, it, it, and I, I don't think that these kind of times are the best times for us to begin to engage a person on a purely intellectual level uh, or, or even a, 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 for a theological exchange unless they invite it. Uh, but rather to meet them purely on an emotional level, as Paul calls us to do here. I think about the classic example of doing everything wrong in the, in the Scriptures, and this kind of a context is in the book of Job. After astonishing loss that Job went through, Job's comforters come, so-called comforters, his friends uh, come to him. And, and they would have ended up being the absolute heroes of the book of Job if they had just kept quiet and they listened to Job and wept with him, as Paul calls here, and then just prayed uh, for him. But somehow uh, they feel the need to protect God and to protect uh, his reputation in all of this and, and then to fix uh, Job. And they try to reduce the entire thing to a maxim uh, that they continue to throw in Job's face over the course of the six months that is the, the context of the time context of the book, and that is that only great sinners suffer uh, greatly. And so if Job would just uh, confess his sin and repent of it, uh, God's favor would be upon uh, his, his, his life uh, once again. And it's just awful to read all the way uh, through the book of Job, not because I look down upon them, but because I see myself in them to some degree as well. And, and not only were they of no comfort to Job at all, they, they made his heart break immeasurably worse. I think about a woman, and this is just, um, I, 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 we could give a whole morning of examples like this. But it's characteristic. And I think of a woman I spoke to not long ago who had lost one of the, her husband, who was one of the finest men I'd ever known in my whole life. A, a very, very godly man, a good man, a noble man, uh, beloved by her. What a, what a marriage uh, they had. And he lost a, a very long, and nothing less than a heroic, uh, battle with cancer, and a Christian endeavored to comfort her by saying something like, well, now you'll have the time to do things you weren't able to do before. And this kind of thing pours forth from us continually sometimes. And if you can't improve upon weeping, then don't try. And the fact of the matter is, is that most of us, I think, have probably stumbled in this way a little bit in trying to help weeping people. I certainly have. And because of that, this instruction is so invaluable to us. Because the world we live in is a suffering place, and it's filled with suffering people. And we find ourselves continually in these situations, not only among non-Christians, but Christians as well. We're not immune to these things as Christians. And I think that most of us have a, a first-hand uh, knowledge of how helpful an empathetic friend is in seasons and moments like this in life. 
We understand it. We have experienced it in our lives. And those who have regarded our, our grief and responded to our grief with, <clears throat> with a deep empathy, a deep interest, and even tears of their own, and what that means uh, to us when that happens. Because the person who is weeping recognizes the weeping and the interest of the other to be its own prayer. And it's something that's very meaningful. I like the, uh, in our daily bread, that daily devotional, it tells the story of a little boy whose next door neighbor, as an older gentleman, had lost his wife and, uh, recently. And when the boy saw the elderly man crying, he climbed up onto his lap and he, he simply sat there. Later, his, his mother asked the boy what he had said to their uh, saddened neighbor. And uh, the boy replied, nothing. I just helped him cry. And uh, very often, it, uh, that is what people need most in the moment. Now, Paul then, his attention is also turned to uh, just as important in, in encouragement, and that is to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's very important to realize, again, for us as Christians, I'm not talking to the majority of Christians, uh, but just to some segment of us, but it does all of us no harm uh, to hear it, that seasons of, uh, of rejoicing in life uh, as a result of some kind of a mountaintop experience or some physical blessing or some uh, tremendous circumstance uh, in our life, these things should never be considered carnal in a Christian uh, or that exuberant rejoicing in a Christian over these kind of things should never be considered uh, something that's unspiritual or something that's unbecoming uh, a Christian. So this, is the, this kind of thing should never be tamped down in another Christian's uh, life. Uh, most of life is not lived in a place. Uh, we, we rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul wrote. We rejoice in these things that Christ has brought into our lives that lie beyond the reach of the circumstances of life. But those seasons in life when the circumstances are as wonderful and as great a cause for life as uh, what Christ has brought into our lives or something that at least approaches that, those seasons of rejoicing in our life, uh, those are not a constant. Those are, those are things that can happen uh, just in two handfuls uh, uh, of, of uh, times uh, within a, a human being's life. They're things that are to be celebrated. They're things to be remembered and savored for the rest of our, our, our life. Most of life is not lived there. And so those kind of seasons to be enjoyed. There's an, there's an old Swedish uh, proverb, and that is, you can always tell a Norwegian you can't tell them much. Now, that's not the one I was going to quote, <laughs> but it's still a good one for uh, you uh, folks from that part of the world. Uh, but here's the, here's the one for our purposes, the old Swedish uh, proverb. Uh, shared joy is a double joy, and shared sorrow is half sorrow. And, uh, and it's, that's really true in, in some measure. When we get to share a joy with another person, I get to experience 
the joy all over again uh, when, when that happens, when you have somebody uh, to do that with. Uh, I mean, imagine having a great cause for joy and celebration in our lives and then having no one to share it with. Uh, no one to then experience the joy all over again uh, with. I mean, our rejoicing wouldn't be nearly what it could be without having someone uh, else to rejoice with. And I think that this speaks to us to how wonderful and important it is, as Paul exhorts us here, for each of us as Christians to be the kind of person that someone can share their joys with and then expect us to then rejoice with them over the cause uh, of, of their joy. To rejoice with those uh, who rejoice is to do something wonderful in another person's life. Now, uh, but all of this, it, it, to me, it, it then raises the question, why would Paul find it necessary to exhort us to do this except that it doesn't come naturally uh, to us? Except that rejoicing with even another Christian when they are rejoicing is not our first or our deepest response. Well, I, I think to myself, what then is apparently our natural response to the joys of others that we have to be careful of so that we will then rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think very often our natural response to the joys of others uh, is to be jealousy, jealous of it, or some other form of selfism. See if you recognize this in your own life or in the life of the person sitting next to you and feel free to jab them. <laughs> so here we have a friend who gets a brand new car and is so excited to show it to us. And as they're doing so in all of their excitement, our first thought is, Lord, how come I can't afford a new car like that? Immediately turns uh, inward. And, uh, and, and, and when we turn it inward, and we become jealous or we become comparative related to it, immediately that dampens our joys. We have, we have, we, and the other person will notice it, that another dynamic has entered in uh, other than a, a pure celebration of this blessing in my life. The same thing happens when uh, somebody gets a new home. The same thoughts can come into our mind, or they go on a vacation that we've always dreamed of doing but not been able to do or they get a new job, or they get a promotion at work, or uh, they get married. Uh, and this very kind of thing can happen in ministry. Uh, it, 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 we'll even joke about it as pastors. And uh, to go to a pastor's conference, and uh, you ask a fellow pastor how things are going, and they tell you in the last year the size of the church has tripled, and uh, they've written two best-selling books, and all five of their children are currently studying to become uh, foreign missionaries. And you try to manage a smile 
as they're telling you all this, and instead you just kind of slap them on the back and say, that's great, bro, and break away as fast as you can uh, from them because the church that you're pastoring has had is half what it was a year ago because uh, several families have had to leave as a result of job relocations and you print up the outlines to the study to hand out on Sunday mornings and nobody even wants them and not one of your children is preparing for anything spiritual that you can see. They're, they're, they are the ultimate handful uh, on a daily basis and, and at best. And because jealousy can be so deeply ingrained within us, a fellow Christian who will truly rejoice with you in your joy, uh, it can be a hard thing to find. Uh, not quite as hard as, uh, and as rare as an albino robin, but uh, just about as, as rare. Of course, one of the classic examples in the, in the Bible of this ability to rejoice with those who uh, rejoice and the inability to do that is the older brother uh, in Jesus' parable of the prodigal uh, son. And it should be entitled the parable of the prodigal sons. It wasn't even directed toward the younger son, actually. It was all mainly about the older son. So the younger son, he returns home after wasting all of his life and his fortune with uh, prodigal uh, living. And uh, in, the, in the parable, he represents every backslider that has ever lived. And then there is the father in, in the parable, and he represents God the father who is so thrilled at the return of his son from his backslidden condition that he orders a feast of celebration to, uh, to, to occur. Uh, related to the event. And then the older brother, he refuses to enter into the festivities or into the joy at all. And uh, as you might remember it, I mean, he is filled with anger, he is jealous, and he just simply could not rejoice at his father's grace bestowed upon uh, even his brother. Uh, and the, immediately he makes it all about himself, and all he could think about was what his father had given to his brother and that had not been given uh, to him. And an incapacity, an, an inability to rejoice with those who rejoice, it is never, ever a good sign uh, concerning our godly character or our, our spiritual maturity. And so we see the, the, the necessity of not only Paul calling upon us uh, to sorrow and weep with those who weep, but then to call on us to take seriously uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And I'm convinced that for most of us as Christians, the far easier thing to do is to weep with those who weep rather than to rejoice with those who rejoice. And the reason I say that is because when we weep with someone who is weeping, we're generally uh, weeping with someone who is, we are generally in a better place than them material, physically, emotionally than they are. We're in a superior place. But when we're called on to rejoice with those who rejoice, very often the tables are turned. They're in the superior position uh, very often in life. And we're in the outwardly in inferior place. And so it's hard for us to do that without becoming uh, jealous of it or to becoming self-consumed or comparative related to the blessing. 
And yet Paul commands on us to do that, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so how does that happen? Where in the world does this come from? And I close briefly uh, with this. Certainly a key to this. None of this comes natural to us. We are utterly and incurably selfish apart from God. So how can I, with sincerity, in the way that Paul intends in this verse, how can I as an individual Christian come to a place in my life in which I genuinely can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? And certainly none of us can do it apart from the person and the work of the Holy Spirit within, within our lives. He provides us with the power to do this and the will uh, to do this. I would have ended the sermon uh, at this point if God had, didn't provide uh, with a, in us the will to live this kind of a life. But how to do it? Well, the Holy Spirit is key in this. And then also the desire to grow into Christ-likeness, to recognize that this was heavily represented on both fronts in the life of Christ, and it is a part of becoming like Him to be able to do both of these things. And I think another key to this weeping and rejoicing is to truly believe, not just as verses in the Bible, but to truly believe that as Christians that we are a part of the same body, that we are a part of the body of Christ, and that as God declares that we are part of the same family, uh, the family of God. And thus, when one is blessed, we're all blessed. And when one uh, sorrows or hurts, then we're all affected. And Paul has brought this out. And I think that our ability to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice is directly proportional to how uh, deeply we understand and, and are experiencing the fact that Christianity and to be a Christian is to really be a part of a family in the way that God intends us to understand that. Paul brings it out earlier, he does in the same chapter in verse 3, for he said, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are all in this uh, together. And just as what happens in one part of the body affects the rest of the body, whether for sorrow or, or for joy, or, or the, as the introduction of sorrow or joy into one member of a, a physical family, uh, produces sorrow or joy in the rest of the family, so too everything that happens to every other Christian has an Im impact upon the whole family of God. And a key to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and really doing it, 
not as a learned behavior, not as, as acting or pretending to feel something that I don't really feel. It is to recognize how intimately connected we are by the Holy Spirit uh, in the body of Christ as, as members of, of the family of God. And why is this important? I'll give you a couple of examples. I would feel an entirely different level of joy if my brother won the lottery as opposed to reading in the newspaper that Joe Bacicalupi did in Ukiah. Uh, as As sorry as I would be for anyone to ever be stricken with an incurable disease, It would be an altogether greater sorrow if my brother was diagnosed with the same disease. Or when a stranger loses a spouse to death, I would definitely experience sorrow, but it would be a far greater sorrow if it happened to a family member of mine. And, and I think it is only the person who really comes to understand that as Christians, we are one body, we are a family in the eyes of God, that we will ever come to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep in the body of Christ. Because to do so, it requires love, it requires uh, the uh, emotional commitment, and it requires the time that we normally only reserve for family. And we do not consider, I'll speak to myself very often, do not consider uh, the family of Christ and the body of Christ to be the same priority in my life as the physical family, and yet the Holy Spirit is willing to make it that priority within my life. This is another family, the family of God. And I know that the world says, well, you know, blood is thicker than water. In other words, that relationships and loyalties within the family, physical family, they're the strongest and the most important ones. But the spiritual birth has accomplished by the Holy Spirit and and the blood of Christ And what that has done in our lives, it truly does and is intended to to produce the strongest possible bond of all. And because there is an entire world of joys and sorrows in life that are known only to a child of God, they are completely unique to a child of God, that if we do not get this rejoicing and this weeping from fellow Christians, then we will not get it at all. And what are those joys and those sorrows that are unique to us that only another Christian can understand? The joy of having a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a friend trust in Jesus and become saved. Who do you share that with except another Christian to receive joy? The joy of sharing God's offer of salvation to someone and then praying with them to become a Christian. 
That's something that only another Christian is going to rejoice in. Ah, but to find a Christian who'll rejoice. Or the joy of stepping out in faith in a spiritual gift or calling upon our lives and then to take that step of faith and then for God to actually use us and we know that He used us. Who can we share that joy with except another Christian? Or the joy of studying the Bible and then having a passage just simply explode to life like it has never done before and in that revelation that only the Holy Spirit can give, the joy of answered prayer or the sorrow of a prodigal son or daughter or father or mother or brother or sister or friend or the sorrow of having a loved one refuse the gospel, refuse God's offer of salvation, the sorrow of then losing a loved one in that unsaved uh, condition, the sorrow of being told by friends or family not to talk about God anymore when the family gets together, and that it is only another child of God who can understand these things and has any hope of truly obeying this admonition of Paul, and then in doing so, to double our joys in life, which is necessary in this life, and then perhaps even to have uh, our sorrows. Rejoice with those who rejoice, Paul writes, and weep with those who weep. What a wonderful, wonderful truth to have planted within our hearts. And then not only to be planted there, but to know that as we are willing, that God will produce this very reality and each of our lives is to the degree that we, we would de desire it. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we see the necessity for both of these things to be a part of each of our lives as your children toward every other person that is a part of the family. And Lord, we thank you for how far you have brought us in our Christian pilgrimage and in our growth as Christians and increasing our capacity to love, to love the body of Christ, to love people in the way that you do, and with that, the capacity to rejoice with people who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. And Lord, here we stand in this goofy little place, 4300 American Avenue in Modesto, California. And it's not much, but Lord, what we do here is important to you. And we just ask that in the privacy and the simplicity of this place, that you would continue to produce this kind of compassion and, and bring to reality this uh, exhortation, this admonition of Paul, Lord, recognizing not only how much we need it, Lord, in our own lives, but how much everyone else in the body of Christ needs it as well. 
We surrender ourselves to you, knowing that what we have prayed, we have prayed and asked in accordance with your will, and that you have heard us, and that you will answer our prayers. And we do so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.